I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT what price loyalty? We ask whether banks' special rates for loyal customers are just desserts or just derisory. When will value investing start paying off? We compare the track records of value funds versus growth plays. And how many fund managers have you heard of? We raise the profile of some unsung heroes. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent. I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Elaine Moore. Hello. And Alice Ross. Hello. And our special studio guest, Jonathan Ely, editor of Investors Chronicle. Hello. So let's start then with the money news. This week we came to the end of the ISA season as last-minute savers rushed to meet the April 5th deadline. But it seems that the new ISA season for the new tax year has started almost immediately, with banks keen to promote their cash ISA rates for the 2012-13 tax year. Many of these include so-called loyalty bonuses, supposedly higher rates for savers who already have another account or investment product with the bank. These loyalty bonuses are now commonplace on non-ISA savings deals as well. But are they actually any good? Or are they just an example of the practice of bundling products together, which the Financial Services Authority raised as a risk only two months ago? Elaine, you've been adding up the price of loyalty. Does it amount to anything? Well, I'm going to start with a piece of good news and a product that actually does reward you for loyalty. So we're going to start with Santander. The ISA there gives you 3.5% if you have a current account, and that's the best in the market. It's a variable rate. That means if the base rate goes up, the rate of this ISA will go up. Um, and it comes. you have to have a current account, and the current account is also considered one of the best in the market because it pays you 5% interest on credit that's held. Well, that, sounds, that sounds very good. So loyalty does pay. Well, loyalty doesn't always pay. So I've spent the whole week surrounded by tables, bits of paper, looking through all these things. And what we found is if we look at um, rates for savings that aren't ISAs, there are some quite shocking disparities between the best in the market and the worst in the market. And what's more, even more shocking is that some of the worst in the market are offered to people who, are, who have current accounts that they pay for. So these are fee-paying current accounts? These are fee-paying current accounts. Which you have to have in order to get a loyalty bonus that is so you're a, worth what? You're a premier customer or an advanced customer. In some way, you're this special customer. You're paying £12.95, £19.95 every single month for these accounts to get a bundled package of extras. 
and uh, and the bonus for being such a loyal fee-paying customer is how much interest on your related account? Well, if we look at HSBC, you could get, for your instant access saving, 0.1%. That's the loyalty rate? That's the loyalty rate. For your £12.95 each month, you're getting 0.1%. So what's, the, what's the disloyalty rate? That's 0.05%. Oh, so there is a reward. There oh, is a reward. Fantastic. Oh, well, that's but if we have a look at the good. very best rate on offer, that's 3.01 from Nationwide, and that's an e-saver. So the difference between what you're getting and what you could get is enormous. So I mean, do you think that a lot of customers are being effectively fobbed off, being told uh, we're rewarding you as a loyal customer, um, but they could go elsewhere and get a much better deal? I think lots of people don't really realise. We know that millions of people are in these accounts paying less than the Bank of England base rate. I think what we might not have known before is that how many of these people are paying for a current account at the same time. Um, there's some really good rates out there. What the banks are saying to me is that the difference is because private banking is branch-based and online rates at the top of the rate table, are um, they're cheaper to run, it's all online offerings. But actually Santander offers 2.5%, that's a branch-based instant access savings rate. So it's not, not actually the case that uh, these rates have to be so low. Um, I'm just looking across the sort of product range, I, I know that you get loyalty bonuses for certain ISA rates. They're also offered on other types of savings account, aren't they? They are for regular savers. This, this is actually quite good. HSBC and its online brand First Direct, they'll give you 8%. Um, for a regular saver account, and that's double what you could get if you didn't have an account elsewhere. So you can get 4% HSBC if you're not a current account customer. So okay. that's quite good. So HSBC, it's generous to loyal customers who are regular savers, but incredibly mean to loyal customers who have a fee paying current account. It's sinners and winners, yeah. HS HSBC seems to concentrate on one particular product and then its other products, it just ignores it, lets the rates slide down and doesn't do anything to them. So what would your advice be to anyone who is offered a loyalty bonus? I'd have a very close look at everything that you're being offered with it. Uh, Santander has one of the best rates around at the moment for uh, savings rates and current account, but you do need to be aware that that's only for a year. So after one year, this very high credit rate for the current account drops down, the um, free overdraft goes away. So just be aware of that. So the rewards for loyalty are temporary, as uh, as I would have, would have suspected. Um, Elaine, thanks very much uh, indeed for that. And for details of uh, the loyalty rates that are worth something and those that really aren't, take a look at Elaine's analysis and her Best Buy comparison table in the money section of this weekend's FT. Still to come on the show, how many star fund managers can you name? apart from those two obvious ones. Well, Alice will suggest a few lesser-known stars in a moment. But first, value investing versus growth investing. Traditionally, value investing, buying shares at prices that are low multiples of a company's earnings and assets and yielding a high-level dividend income, has been the favoured approach of long-term private investors and, indeed, many fund managers. Countless academic studies show that it outperforms growth investing over the long term. But try telling that to investors in equity income funds in recent years. Their managers have been employing a classic value investing strategy, but underperforming for some time. However, this week, research from Schroeder's private bank suggested that the tide may be turning. It said relative performance of value versus growth has tended to be cyclical, with value tending to outperform over the longer term and the current 
underperformance of value versus growth is stretched by historic standards. So does that mean that value will start to win out, or does growth investing still offer opportunities? Well, who better to answer that than the man who's about to host six investor roadshows across the UK all about growth, Jonathan Ely of Investors Chronicle. Jonathan, as you set out across the UK uh, to deliver your roadshows, which particular growth strategies um, are you planning on highlighting? Well, we'll be talking about things like um, commodities, very much in the news at the moment with gold and silver hitting new highs. Um, We'll be talking about things like emerging markets, but um, somewhat perversely for a growth-orientated roadshow, we'll also be talking about value shares because the the chaps at Schroeder's private bank are um, right, we think. Um, All the studies show uh, value investing does outperform growth over the longer term. The interesting thing is that it's failed to do so over the last couple of years. And that's left um, some people like Neil Woodford, for instance, the other day was kind of forced onto the defensive a bit over his recent um, track record. However, if you look at the last sort of 10 years, the last 20 years, um, value has indeed beaten growth quite handsomely. I think uh, the high yield index for FTSE 350 shares returned about 9.6% a year over the last 20 years versus about 7.2% for the, um, for the low yield index. So it, it is about you know, looking longer term, playing the slightly longer game in terms of value investing. But I suppose the, uh, the general thrust of, uh, of what you'll be discussing in the roadshow is that there's a place in a portfolio for, for both strategies, depending on the asset class that you're, that you're talking about. Depending on the asset class and also depending on the time scale. I mean, I think people, it's interesting to consider why um, people tend to go for growth over value. Um, they look at things like um, we, we did a share tip on African Aura Mining in 2009, which has now risen 800%. So that's quite a good People uh, look at that and they think, oh, I'll have a bit of that. Um, But the the problem with growth stocks is that often they come with quite a high dollop of risk attached to them. And also it's very difficult to spot in advance what is going to be um, a a genuine growth stock and and what is going to be something that runs out of steam after a while, a bit like that Duracell bunny. Um, I think with value shares, it's, it's... the, the growth is less rapid, it's less exciting, but it's more consistent. And that's especially true when you factor in the impact of dividend income and, and reinvesting that, um, which makes a tremendous difference to long-term share price returns. And that's what all of these studies constantly emphasise, isn't it? The fact that when you look at longer time periods, the proportion of your total return that comes from reinvested dividends is massive. It's absolutely enormous, yes. Uh, it raises an interesting question, actually, as well, which is... Um, what sort of return should we be looking for um, each year? Um, what is average? How much should we be content with, I suppose? And I think people tend to look at the stock market's historic performance, especially in the 1980s and 90s, and think, oh, wow, I can get 9 or 10% a year um, without breaking a sweat. And uh, it was interesting to see that John Bogle, um, who's a household name in the US but not so, not so well known over here, um, sounded a warning that actually in the future structural returns from stock markets are going to be a lot lower precisely because um, the dividend component of uh, of that equation has, has reduced sharply. Exactly. Um, and in terms of the other areas that you're going to be um, covering in your uh, roadshows, are there any sort of particular themes that you think are sort of of the moment? Um, yes, I think the emerging market one is, um, is very interesting. There are huge flows of um, private investor funds into emerging market funds at the tail end of last year. Um, 
so far this year, emerging markets have in general underperformed um, developed markets. And it will be interesting to see which way that goes in 2011. Will the superior economic growth and sounder public finances of emerging markets translate into better returns for investors? Or will they simply translate into increased wealth for the populations of those countries? Exactly. And I, and I suppose, again, going back to as academic studies, uh, you know, a number have shown that there's uh, almost no, well, no correlation between uh, GDP growth in emerging market economies and, uh, and total stock market returns, which, which I suppose seems counterintuitive or seems confusing for the private investor. That's very true, although um, adjacent to that is the fact that since the, the end of the dot-com boom, emerging stock markets have outperformed developed markets. And the interesting question is whether that historic lack of correlation is now breaking down or whether it was just a valuation anomaly that's correcting itself. And presumably if someone comes along to the roadshow, they will get a definitive answer to that question. Um, I certainly hope so. They'll, certain, they'll, they'll get to hear lots of um, presentations on other subjects um, from a variety of speakers. And we have three dates in late June and early July in London, Bath and Harrogate. Right. So well, if you're anywhere near London, Bath or Harrogate, or even if you're not, it's, well, I think it's definitely going to be worth travelling um, to go to one of these roadshow uh, events. If you'd like to know more about them, have a look at the promotion in the money section of this weekend's FT or visit the dedicated website www icroadshow.co.uk Tickets for the roadshows are free but numbers are limited so make sure you claim yours quickly. And finally today, star fund managers. If I said name me a highly successful UK fund manager, who would you think of? But if I said name me a successful UK fund manager who isn't Anthony Bolton or Neil Woodford, who would you come up with? Well, there are certainly some names that you ought to be more aware of. Managers such as Peter Spiller, Nick Train and Giles Hargrave, for example, have been quietly building up impressive long-term performance records. But Alice, you've been looking at the, uh, uh, the fund management uh, industry th- this week. Why is it that outside the industry, these managers aren't really household names? Uh, basically, they just don't have the marketing machines behind them that someone like Anthony Bolton at Fidelity does or Neil Woodford at Invesco Perpetual does. They're, they're not promoting themselves, and yet they, their performance is absolutely amazing over the long term. It's bizarre. And uh, you know, of these um, unsung heroes, if you like, who particularly sort of stands out to you in terms of their performance history? Well, if we, if we take Peter Spiller, for example, um, points for anyone that can tell me what fund he runs? Oh, well, that's put me to shame. I, I, I know I know his name, but I can't think of the fund. Well, I didn't. I hadn't even heard of him before, but he has been running money since 1984. He runs an investment trust called the Capital Gearing Trust. And uh, annually, over that time period, on average, he's produced 17.4% a year. An annualised yes. average return? compound annual performance. Crazy. And is it simply because, you know, investment trusts don't, well, they don't advertise, do they? They don't really market themselves. No, I mean, investment trusts generally don't have marketing and advertising in the way that unit trusts do, because investment trusts are themselves listed companies, so they try and keep their costs down. Um, so it's unusual for an investment trust to do that kind of marketing. And in fact, most of the names, um, of the fund managers that you've never heard of that people were suggesting to me are running investment trusts. So we've also got Nick Train, um, who runs the Finsbury Growth and Income Trust. That's becoming a little better known, actually. Um, we also have Bruce 
Bruce Stout, who runs Murray International, hugely popular with all of these private client wealth managers, but really not well known outside of that field. We also have Mark Shepard at Manchester and London. Um, His investment trust has returned 243% over the past 10 years. That's versus 64% on the FTSE All Share. So this is massive outperformance that's Mm. that's going unnoticed. Is is another factor that um, the way funds are are bought in this country is generally through independent financial advisors, IFAs, and they have traditionally ignored investment trusts, possibly because they don't get paid commission for selling them. Yeah, I think think it's fair to say that that is why investment trusts aren't as popular with IFAs. I mean, even the Association of Investment Companies would say that that's a big factor why they've um, been left out of portfolios quite frequently. And of course, that's all set to change because from 2013, commission will be banned um, and hopefully investment trusts will will come much more on investors' radars. But in fairness to some of the other unknown fund managers, they're not all from investment trusts. Some unit trust managers just don't want to be in a huge investment house like Fidelity. They want to be at smaller um, boutiques where there isn't maybe that kind of hype around them. They want to just run money quietly and do what they do best, and they don't want to have their face on a billboard. They want a quiet. They want a quiet life and just get on with it. Exactly. I mean, someone like Giles Hargreave at Marlborough um, runs a very successful small and microcap fund, um, but the nature of the fund, because it's small and microcap, he doesn't want the fund to be too big. So it's currently about 50 million, which is very small. Um, but he doesn't really want any more money because that would cause problems for him trying to invest. So he's happy kind of staying below the radar. Oh, sorry, Giles, we've just gone and blown your cover. I <laughs> hope <laughs> you know, he doesn't get uh, too much, well, too much money flowing his way as a result of uh, as a result of this. Um, so so how, do, how does a private investor then find out about these managers if 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 ifas aren't going to talk about investment trust managers and those unit trust managers who want to remain low profile are sort of keeping their heads down uh is there a way of researching them is it a question of going online and looking at long-term track records um yeah i mean you could uh, obviously read the article (laughs) of course financial press will help you out with that um if you go on to a lot of uh, stockbroker websites and you can see the funds that they're recommending often they have you know lesser known ones on there um i mean you know even the hargreaves lansdowne wealth 150 has i think a couple of these guys on there although they don't tend to recommend investment trusts um but you can you can find investment trust stuff at, at other stockbrokers that do recommend them So certainly worth seeking out these uh, little-known names. Thanks, Alice. And uh, as Alice mentioned, if you want to know more about the biographies and performance histories of these lesser-known fund managers, you can read Alice's article in the money section of this weekend's FT. But that's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you'll find all of these stories, plus daily news updates, top tips, and our latest Q&A on the new pension rules on our website at ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Elaine, Alice and Jonathan Ely of Investors Chronicle. Goodbye. Bye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.